you're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. This is a bonus cut for the podcast. Unfortunately, we couldn't fit in everything we spoke about with Paul F. Verhoeven on the show. So here is our full discussion for your enjoyment. You are listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. And on the line right now, I am joined by Paul F. Verhoeven, writer of Loose Units and Electric Blue the second of which has just come out, as well as a a storied individual in Australian media. <laughs> it's, it's a bit weird admitting that I'm, I'm I may be a young person, but and also maybe terrifying for you. But I grew up listening to Nerdy by Nature yes. as one of the shows when I was going to study. Yes, and you know, you being excited about weird geeky things is the oh, kind of thing that's man. gotten me into making shows like this. So it's so good to chat with you, Paul. That's so sweet. I love it. I um, I really miss being on radio once a week, bothering people with my inane weirdness. I, I really, really, <laughs> I really appreciate that. I um, It's funny having made a career out of just doing stuff about stuff I like. Yeah. And it's really odd to kind of, because I, I didn't want to write about my dad's crime stuff when I, that wasn't what I grew up wanting to do, but I did want to mm-hmm. write books and it's, it's, I threw so many things at the wall. I've tried so many different random careers and it's weird to be like 30, 30 ugh, 37 and have this whole strange new chapter of my life opened up where, you know, twice a week I'm working with my dad, which is, I mean, it's, t- <laughs> but what's weird is technically I'm the person who started this family business and it's running backwards in time. You know, normally it's the father yeah. who hands the son the thing. So now I've like roped my dad into stuff, but yeah, it's a, uh, hang on. That's a long time ago, the Triple J stuff. That's like, oh my God, I'm so old. Uh, <laughs> all right, cool. I'm just having an existential crisis. No, anyway, it's lovely to be here. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, that, was a, that was a beautiful chapter of my life. Yeah. Now, the reason I brought you on today, mm. uh, our first episode discussing Cheng Xiaoqing's Sherlock in Shanghai, and this is going to be a bit of a weird one for our audience, but you recently wrote a piece about, uh, about Star Trek, about Dixon Hill, Mm, and yes. it blew my mind because about two days before you did, I was sitting down with my co-host Herds and explaining to him that Dixon Hill and Jean-Luc Picard is the sci-fi equivalent of Cheng Xiaoqing to real-world China because he was basically, you know, out of his depth as all of this Western detective fiction started to pour into his world, yeah. got used to it, kind of slipped into it and reluctantly started to enjoy it, then started to tell his own stories. And then later in life, when we start to look at Star Trek Picard, the series kind of fell out of love a bit with the community that had originally embraced him and, you know, began to adapt to the new stylings. And I was just thinking to myself that the the parallels between the fan fiction-ish style of Dixon Hill and Jean-Luc Picard and the retellings of Western detective fiction that Cheng Xiaoqing did in his own days uh, uh, such amazing parallels and seeing you put that out on a page just days after I'd had that discussion was amazing. And the thing I wanted to ask you, Paul, mm. was, you know, when we look at fan fiction, I feel like it has a bit of a bad rap these days because the internet has opened the floodgates to some lesser quality fan fictions. But given that so much of uh, storytelling is driven by inspiration, why is it important that we have these loves and these passions for the things we grew up on? Christ. Yeah, I've kind of built my whole career off the off the somewhat 
weird premise that everyone is deeply obsessed with something, right? Like I've always believed that someone, even the most hardened meth head will have something that makes them squee in the corner of their rooms. Everyone's got a fandom. Everyone's got stuff they care about on that level. As far as Picard and Dixon Hill goes, I mean, first of all, just sidebar, I really think um, Michael Chabon went a bit too hard on Picard's apparent wrongdoing in the events of Picard. I mean, <laughs> I, I really think the universe needs to give the guy a break. Like he did so mm-hmm. much good and the series was just like, everyone was mad at the guy. I know. <laughs> like, what are you doing? He rescued like, I think he, he spent like seven years rescuing hundreds of thousands of people. And then one thing goes wrong and suddenly he's a pro. I don't know. I think that's down to a personal preference, <laughs> but I'm still, I'm still a little bit mad about that. But I've made a living off this, off the idea that everyone inside them has, a, has an inner child who needs to be fed and you can overfeed that kid and he can become like grotesquely obese and just like living in a trailer park and very unkempt. Or you can just, you know, take him for a jog occasionally and just, you know, take care of him. I think... I, I remember um, when Game of Thrones first came out and I was reading the books and uh, I was watching the show and at that point it hadn't gotten extraordinarily bad yet and a bunch of bullies from high school got in touch on Facebook because they'd heard me on the Jays and were like, Paul, do you know anything about this Game of Thrones? What do you think of, um, what do you think of Arya? Do you think she's going to uh, be able to see again? And I'm like, dude, where were you when I needed you? Like, where was this <laughs> openness? So what, I think what's happened is uh, obviously we've all been living through this massive nerd renaissance and as with everything related to capitalism, it's gone through various stages, some of them good, some of them awful. Mm-hmm. But I think generally speaking now, it's a lot more uh, acceptable to like what you like and to wear your heart in your sleeve, right? Like it's okay to come out and say you like, I mean, doesn't Vin Diesel play Dungeons and Dragons? I know he's not the, like the pinnacle of cool, but I mean, <laughs> if, if if, if he'd admitted that in high school, he'd have been beaten to death with his shoe. So I, I think, yeah. I, and I think one of the great things about growing up with all these kind of fictional universes is that you sort of, whether it's, you know, high art or it's Sherlock Holmes or it's just Fast and the Furious, speaking of which, Fast Five is a fantastic movie. It, it, it's, mm-hmm. I think it's really um, important to realize that role models don't have to be real people. Um, you can draw life lessons from completely fictional characters I mean, the amount of life lessons I inherited from Doctor Who is just, it's unhealthy. But the fact (laughs) is that we do kind of, you know, we build these Frankenstein's monsters of of role models out of various places. And I think the reason it's important to keep those dreams alive and keep exploring those worlds and those characters is because if you do, you can be constantly updating uh, kind of a template for what you want to be as a person, like whether you want to be a a decent person or not. I mean, my dad, uh, who I do you know, all my stuff with and who I wrote Electric Blue about, he doesn't really have any fictional role models. He doesn't He doesn't see the point. He doesn't really have the imagination to kind of um, get into the spirit of things. Although I did make him watch Elementary and now he's three seasons in and I, I love the show. And he's now he's starting to get it. Like he's starting to call me up and he's learning how to talk about the uh, stories that he's enjoying in a way that I think a lot of the older generation don't know how to or – um. You know, if you're basic, you know, if you're a little bit basic and you don't really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's not a criticism. I mean, it is a criticism sometimes, but in this (laughs) case, dad just doesn't know how to talk about what he likes in an articulate way. He Mm. doesn't know how to uh, express his opinions because he doesn't see the point. I think he sees it as kind of an impractical means of discussing things. Like, I watched it, I liked it, 
that's the end of the discussion. I'm like, yeah, but what do you think happened after the camera stopped rolling? Do you think Sherlock walked off camera and did this? Do you think he was thinking about, th and dad's like, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> but after a few weeks of just battering him with this uh, way of thinking, he's finally starting to think like a fan. Yeah. You can go way too far in the opposite direction. Social media is proof of that. You can weaponize fandom. I don't like that, but I think it is just crucially important to find things you like and find worlds you like. And when you're in them, put walls up to make them feel real. Yeah. Because they are real. I mean, you've kind of preempted my next question there a little bit, which was going to be, which was going to be when it comes to things like, you know, for example, you working with your father. And I know in a lot of what I've seen about Electric Blue, you said that it was a bit of a hurdle to get over going from being like, dad, stop telling me those stories about your work to embracing it and starting to love it. And the same, it sounds like with your dad starting to love the shows that you appreciate, you know, how can you approach things in a way that makes it easier to break down those barriers and be open to the things you love? or could love. I think it just comes down to the right person. You know, like the notion of evangelism is something that is abhorrent, but the basic <laughs> idea behind it is you have a you have an idea that you want to you know, you want you want to gestate in other people. And I have always seen I mean the the journey I went through when I started on the radio and then kind of got to where I am. I used to think if you didn't like the good stuff, I'm doing the rabbit fingers here, then you were an idiot who needed to be educated. That point of view is repugnant and I hate myself for thinking that way. It, you just like what you like. Don't get me wrong. I still privately think you're an idiot and you're wrong. But I, 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 but like I wouldn't say that. Like I have friends who think Mad Max Fury Road is a terrible film. Um, I think they're terrible people. But the fact is, I think it comes down to who is trying to get you into the thing and also what, what version of the thing are they getting you into? You know, you can, that's the whole idea behind a mixtape. Can you just like whip up seven episodes of a show and I'll just watch those and if I like that, I'm in, right? Um, sometimes you need to be really up for getting into a thing. I have gotten to the point where if I don't understand the thing, I will go back to the very beginning and I will do it all. And I'm a completionist. But I think if you are trying to get someone into a thing, Assuming, of course, you're not making them get into it in a kind of Woody Allen in Annie hallway where he's trying to make her a better person and he's a sex offender, so that's, that's rich. I think it's, it's really nice to be able to have someone experience the stuff you like for the first time and actually enjoy it. And another important aspect of this is if they don't like the thing you like, please don't get angry. <laughs> it's, re it's really tempting. There's nothing more scary, dude, than sitting there with someone who you love and respect I'm talking about my wife, Tegan, here. And then you show them, you show them, like, I was like, okay, we need to watch some Miyazaki movies. And mm -hmm. she's like, all right, whatever. And I put on Howl's Moving Castle, and I knew I was in trouble when her arms were folded about 20 minutes in, you know, when the arms are folded and the, sh the shields are up. And she just kind of got a little bit, she wasn't as, you're meant to be wrapped. You're meant to have your eyes wide open, tears streaming down your face yeah. at the splendor of this thing. And she just watches things differently. And people do have different ways of enjoying things. And I think that's the main thing. Um, and I learned this doing stand-up. Some people don't uh, enjoy media the same way as others. And I think it's really easy if you're an insular person, i.e. a nerd, uh, to assume that 
if a person didn't react the same way you did, that they didn't enjoy it on some level. I mean, the other experience that I have a lot, I guess, is that when I go see films with friends, because I come from this world of media criticism and diving deep into the things, I'll come out of a movie and I'll be like, well, you know, this was a bit weird and that didn't quite work for me in this. And my friends are like, why can't you just enjoy the movie? And I'm like, that was a great movie. Favorite movie of the year. What are you talking about? Yeah, see, I know I, I get that. But I hit this point where I was getting really bummed out by everything because the world is really stressful Mm. and this was about three or four years ago and I had this group of friends that I realized if I took them to the things I was going to like I'm just talking about Marvel movies and Star Wars here yeah I realized that if I took these people to see these things all they would do afterwards with no ill intent in their heart was pick it to pieces (laughs) and I just and I'm like guys ease up because I just needed that and I liked it and I'm not going to overthink it so then what I what I did is I built my own Avengers I picked friends who I knew wouldn't critique the film and who I knew would get there nine hours early with me to stand in the in the media queue so that no one got in front of us we have we we got this down to an art I mean my um (laughs) Yeah, so so I had that literally. It's the, my my two good friends, Richard and Adam McKenzie. They're brothers. They're both comedians, and they are my go to guys for movies because they're both as neurotic as I am. They both get there stupidly early. They if anyone talks, they threaten physical violence. It's great. <laughs> but um, I was in Paris for my wedding with Tegan last April, and it was the day, literally the day before the wedding, and I got my press invite to uh, the Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. Right? And it was like I had to explain to Tegan, look, this this is a twenty. I've been going out with the Avengers longer than we've been going out, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is like a more than 20 years. This is a very big deal for me. And I was genuinely upset that I couldn't go because of my wedding. And then I realized that was a very selfish impulse to have. And uh, so I contacted Disney in Paris. And they said, hey, we've got a private screening for uh, Parisian press for Avengers Endgame. And Adam's like, hey, yeah, so it's the day before the wedding. You shouldn't go. And I'm like, Adam, you of all people should understand this. This is how I like to enjoy my nerd stuff. And he's like, no, it's your wedding. But then Tegan's like, you know what? Just go. It'll be great. We we have stuff to do anyway. So Adam and I went to a uh, Paris screening of Avengers Endgame uh, with with French subtitles at the bottom. But it was like IMAX and it was all French press crying their eyes out when all the big stuff happened. And this, I mean, I have just, I guess what I'm trying to say is you can create a bubble universe around your, your enjoyment of a thing and you can curate the kind of people and the kind of like the rooms you read or watch stuff in, you can adjust the lights however you want. You can kind of like build a safe space for your things, mm. right? Um, and if people are, are, are ruining your enjoyment of it, just, just, just cut them out, man. I'm just, I guess what I'm saying is, to, I, think, I think your friends should cut you I off. I mean, fair enough. And listen, if, if my movie watching group cuts me out after hearing you say this, fair enough to yep. them. Fair Absolutely. enough to them. You should, get, you should get a more curmudgeonly group of people and you can all come out and complain. <laughs> <laughs> now, the last thing I wanted to ask before we let you go, Paul, is coming to write these series of stories with your family and starting to explore crime. And I guess my experience with especially true crime stories and especially from cops is that truth is just stranger than fiction so much of the time. Mm. You know, how how is it as a writer coming to write a story and hearing true events that are weirder than the wildest ideas that you could come up with if you were just trying to make them up. You know, how do you, how do you condense yeah. that and put it on a page? It's really great. It's, it's sort of, um, cause dad and I sat down and I took all these cases and I sort of told stories based on those true events. Um, and the first time around, 
it was pretty easy because it was all happening chronologically. I sort of just took them and rewrote them and changed them and, you know, tweaked with them. Um, the cases themselves were incredibly strange because, yeah, partly because the cases that are really weird are the ones that aren't reported on. Um, mm. because they don't, make it to the, they don't make it to the news. And if you're in emergency services and you deal with five horrific things a week and you're there for years, you're probably not going to remember everything that happened to you. Yeah. So part of the joy of Loose Units and Electric Blue was having dad remember things for the first time. It was like literally like a freshly sealed air mm. kind of sealed version of the, of the events. And then watching him sort of just unravel and tell these stories and then realize he'd let a genie out of a bottle. And then I would take that genie and cut them up and fillet it and cook it and get it ready for, for um, shipping out. With Electric Blue, the new book, which is like days old at this point, which is super stressful, um, <laughs> what I really wanted to do was, uh, apart from Dad's time in forensics, which is like, just think CSI in the 80s, like that's kind of mm. the setting of this uh, in Sydney. I wanted to take Dad's biggest, sketchiest cases and then run a B-plot right through the middle of Dad and I trying to figure out why he in his 20s was like a, superhero Sherlock Holmes kind of cop guy and why I ended up as a, you know, like an artsy fop who didn't have any actual <laughs> practical skills and uh -huh. wasn't heroic at all, right? So, um, and then something very, very strange happened. Very, very strange. Uh, as the book started to go on, this through line of, of choice came into it because when I was a kid, I was obsessed with, um, you know, those uh, various books where you can kind of choose your own ending. Yeah. You know, yeah. like Goosebumps and, and Fighting Fantasy and Lone Wolf and Cub and all those, uh, Lone Wolf, all those adventure books, right? Yeah. And so I started to try and get dad to uh, say what he would have done differently in certain situations. So let's say there's a case where he finds a, a dead body in the woods. This is in the book. So he finds a dead body. Uh, it's like midnight. He's in a national park. Two detectives have called him up to dig up a body. And he digs up the body and they realize that there's no face and no hands on the body. And dad realizes that actually this is the MO of Mr. Asia, who was one of Australia's most prominent heroin dealers in the 70s. And not only that, but at this point, there was like a national inquest, like a big legal proceeding going on. And technically speaking, what they were doing was hugely illegal and was risking the entire case against Mr. Asia. So dad flips out and then a news crew arrives from Channel 10 and films dad with his pants down, so to speak, like knee deep in an, in an open grave, right? Yeah. So I say to dad, hey, what would you have done differently if you'd like known that the detectives clearly called the news crew so they could claim credit mm. for this case? And dad was just like, I don't know what you mean. And I'm like, well, what have you done things differently? He's like, yeah, but you can't, you can't think of it like that. So as a fun exercise, at the end of the book, I wrote a choose your own ending story like into the book. So that case happens again, but suddenly you're playing it as young John and you get to pick the endings and you get to sort of weave your way through. And it's illustrated by me and the font changes and it's like literally it's a book inside a book. It's bizarre. Yeah. And Penguin was so psychotically supportive of this notion and we used the exact same font as um, Steve Jackson's um, Fighting Fantasy game books, which I was like obsessed with when I was a kid. And it's sort of, and I literally, and we, we keep cutting back to dad who just keeps fighting the idea that you can change things. So what I'm trying to say is that Electric Blue was a really nice way of, yes, talking about cases that were stranger than fiction, but then also working in some strange fiction of my own and I think creating a kind of hybrid yeah. process. I mean, it reminds me of a discussion we had just last week with Robert Gott, who was talking about collective memory and kind of the idea that uh, when it when it comes to crime fiction and particularly mystery fiction, there's this inherent 
complexity in the fact that the author can just go back and choose a different culprit if they aren't satisfied with it and write the book differently. Yeah. You know, and what you've done is very much kind of the real world example of that. So I really, I really love that. And I'm personally looking super forward to my copy showing up. I've ordered it. Dude, is it here yet? I can't. I can't wait to hear what you think because it is like I took some chances with this book. Yeah. Like I'm holding it right now and it is like a it is a fat book. It it's is. big. It's uh it was a full full on full on thing, but I think um I was really influenced by video games for this because um, I'm a big gamer. So I was sitting there playing Disco Elysium and I'm a big Stanley Parable fan and I'm just working my way through these games which are basically um stories. Like I don't mind what medium you're telling it in, you can tell interesting stories. And I just thought, you know what? I've always wanted to write video games. I'm just going to gamify the book and see what they think. I don't even think I asked Penguin. And when I showed <laughs> it to them, God bless them, they were like, yeah, okay, let's take a punt. And bear in mind, this is the non-fiction wing yeah. of Penguin. So, suddenly dealing with a semi-fictionalized, <laughs> like it is a, it's a monstrous book. So in terms of, to bring it back to the fandom question, rather than try and create different projects that let me explore different aspects of my fandom of like a myriad of things I like and have liked. I just decided to do it all at once. Mm. Um, and that, that's what Electric Blue is. It is like, a, it's, it's, it's everything in one book. I just threw everything in there because I just thought, what if, it, what if I never get to write another book again? What if the world is just incinerated and we're trading bottle caps for ammunition in a few years? Like, what <laughs> if, right? So I just thought, look, it's, it's true crime. It's, it's, it's all based on things that actually happened. It's a father-son kind of exploratory emotional thing. It's got stuff in there about the fact that I was bullied in high school. It deals with the ADHD problems. It deals with family. It's got my mum in it because I just thought, why not chuck her in? Because she was a cop in the 80s as well. Um, and then it's got this thing at the end, which I, I guess technically counts as a spoiler. But what I've discovered is that when people go to bookstores and pick up a book, nine times out of 10, they flick through it. Like, like if you, you know how people like if they blow their nose, they look at it, mm -hmm. they open the, th and they look at it. Like, don't do that. <laughs> and that's what I'm. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I was precious about the reveal, but uh -huh. now the people are just gonna pick the book up anyway. I just, I thought I'd tell you, and I thought you'd like that. So. Well, I'm, I'm super looking forward to this, Paul. It has been an honor having you on. Electric Blue is out now and we will have links up on the podcast if you're interested in grabbing yourself a copy. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs>